Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Diana Gabaldon is the number one New York Times bestselling author of the widely popular Outlander novels, the basis for the Hit Stars series. In her latest novel, Go Tell the Bees That I Am Gone, the year is in 1779, and Claire and Jamie are at last reunited with their daughter, Brianna. But the American Revolution threatens to tear them apart. On today's episode, Diana Gabaldon talks with Entertainment Weekly's Maureen Lee Lenkler about her career, her writing process, and all things Outlander. So I'll start off by asking, um, we've all waited not so patiently, um, seven years for so this have, book. Yes. <laughs> and generally you take about five. Uh, so this is a little longer of a gap. So um, mm-hmm. was there something more challenging about this book or, or that got in the way? Ah, well, you know, every single interviewer who's spoken to me so far has started with exactly that question. <laughs> you know, it's been seven years since you wrote this in the last book. You know? What was the holdup? What were you doing? Uh, to which the answer is, in my own defense, I wrote four other books during that seven years in addition to writing bees. I also was, and still am, a consultant to the TV show. That means that I not only write scripts for them on occasion, but also I see all of the scripts, all of the proposals, everything that's written with all its iterations, and I see all of the footage that they shoot, the dailies, and I see all of the episodes as they're edited and put together, and those go through multiple stages too. So for about the nine months of each season's filming, um, I may be spending you know, one or two hours a day doing show stuff, which otherwise I might or might not be spending on writing the next book. Uh, so uh, count your blessings that it was only seven years. <laughs> oh, I had two grandchildren too, that counts. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, your research is always so extensive and incredible and really shows on the page, but can you tell us about one or two uh, rabbit holes, that, so to speak, that you fell down uh, while writing this book? Ooh, well, that's an unpredictable question. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, there's lots of them. You start out looking for something and you find something else. But that's just how research works. You know, people say, oh, do you do the research first before you start writing? And no, because I don't plan the books before I start writing them, so I don't know what I need to look up. And uh, except in very broad terms. So usually I'll start by looking through my almanac of the American Revolution, since that's, that's where we are historically. And I'm thinking, oh, that would be an interesting, uh, you know, bit to use, or that would be another interesting bit. Oh, wait a minute, but that was in Rhode Island. They don't have any reason to be in Rhode Island. I can't use that. Uh, Or maybe I could. Could I engineer a way for them to go to Rhode Island? (laughs) So I'd have to say that the world almanac of the American Revolutionary War is probably my chief rabbit hole. (laughs) Um, Well, this is the first book that's come out in the series since the show has started. And uh, eagle-eyed readers might notice that there are characters with names like Hewan and Katrina. Are those mm. intentional <laughs> references to your wonderful cast? Compliments to friends. <laughs> There's a few here and there scattered around. Love I haven't it. put Ron Moore into anything yet. <laughs> um, your titles are also always very evocative. Um, where did this one, Go Tell the Bees That I Am Gone, come from? 
well, it's hard to say where titles come from. I mean, occasionally I will know from the very beginning of a book what its title is. Voyager, for instance, I knew that one before I even wrote the first word. Uh, most of the others kind of evolve over time. I you know, will pick up just sort of the hint of something and kick it around with a few other words in the back of my head. It's like polishing rocks. You throw things in there and let it churn for a while. Then you pull them out and see if any of them are shiny yet. And if they're not, you throw them away and get another, <laughs> another bunch. Uh, so, you know, things like um, A Breath of Snow and Ashes, that one kind of, uh, I didn't have it before I began, but it came call, sort of all of a sudden because I could visualize that last scene after the house burns down. I hadn't written it yet, but I could visualize it. And I could see them, you know, standing there looking at the ashes and the snow is coming down and it's all, you know, cold, but there's this whiff of burning. And, you know, I could just feel them both, you know, inhale this last breath before you get on your horse and leave home. And that's where that one came from. So it came all of a piece. Others, you know, it's sort of bits by bits. Bees, uh, that came sort of out of the research. Um, though also because it was uh, spring and I have desert broom plants in the backyard and the bees love those. They're just all over them. So I would see them every single day when I was out with the dogs walking. And I began thinking about, you know, various things that I know about bees. And one of the things that I know is about old beekeeping traditions. Beekeeping, of course, has been practiced for thousands of years in Europe and Scandinavia and Germany and you know, a few other places. And in all these places, the beekeepers have a fairly common sort of tradition. And that's because bees are social insects. They are very devoted to the hive, to the community. It, it supersedes being a single bee. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of their behavior reflects this. Well, if you're a beekeeper, you understand the social aspect of bees. You go visit your hives every day to take care of them, but you also talk to your bees. And you have to tell them what's going on in your community. Has a baby been born? Has this person died? Has this woman gone to be married to someone in the next town? You know, has somebody's child fallen down the well, but luckily was rescued in time? (laughs) You know, these are the sorts of things you tell your bees. And so uh, you have to tell your bees when anything important happens. If someone, you know, dies, leaves, is born, is married, whatever. Because if something important happens, you don't tell them, and they find out, they'll be angry and swarm and fly away. So you always tell the bees. And people get upset about the title, and they're like, gone? You know, <laughs> Who dies? Does Jamie die? <laughs> well, you might be wondering after that last bit. But, um, well, you know, gone doesn't mean dead, necessarily. I yeah. mean, and People we know they've left leave. Fraser's <laughs> Ridge before, they so have. they could go. Yeah, it doesn't mean anyone will be will die. You know, somebody might, but I'm not saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, over the years, uh, you've added more and more points of view to the books, starting just so, yeah. with, with Claire, and I think this one might have your most ever. Um, how does that evolved for you, um, and how have you found them, uh, and where the right place for them to come is come in is uh, along the way. It's sort of instinctive, basically. I hadn't realized until Fiery Cross, I think, which is the fifth book, that I had, in fact, been adding one viewpoint character to each book as we went. And after that, I was doing it a little more deliberately because I was aware of it. But uh, yeah, I think, frankly, I have. So I think there are nine viewpoint characters in this book, though I haven't stopped to count. <laughs> but um, it's a, a natural progress because while the stories are centered continuously around Jamie and Claire, um, you know, as you get older, your family gets more complex, especially if you have children. You have children, you may have grandchildren, you have cousins, you have aunts, you have adopted children, you have foster children, you have neighbors with whom you have various kinds of complex relationships. And uh, so uh, it's, it's just a more complicated life. And you have to be old and have experience in order to handle all of this. 
I've learned this by growing older. <laughs> uh, was there one character whose voice surprised you the most writing this book? Ah, uh huh. Mm, that would be hard to say for sure. But I think maybe Rachel's, uh, Rachel uh, Hunter, Ian's wife. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she just. Uh, uh, had uh, a much different interior voice. I've seen her, you know, speak publicly and so forth. And uh, we'd had some of her viewpoint in uh, in the last book. In uh, I call it Moby, but it's written in my own heart's blood. And uh, yeah, we saw her in, inside a conversation with Ian, but I think that was only the once. Whereas in this book, she actually has a, a very deep-seated personal conflict going on, and we need to know her interior thoughts about that as well as what she's saying in person. And uh, it's, it's very interesting to write from a Quaker point of view because it's very different from all the other people. At the same time, you know, she is, uh, you know, a very understandable woman given her circumstances and so forth. There's nothing, you know, at all odd or offbeat about her except that she considers it wrong to kill people, <laughs> unlike everybody else in these books. So. <laughs> uh, was there one who you found most challenging as you were trying to get it down on the page? Ah, oh, let's see. Well, Brianna is always a little bit challenging, though she came through for me much better in this book mm. than usual. Yeah, uh, it depends partly on what the conflict is that the character is facing as to how easy it is to write them, because if their conflict and their circumstance is very clear cut, then it's much easier to get inside them and think how they would rec recognize themselves in this, in this situation, how they would react, and, uh, and so the, the think, this conversation between you and them flows more easily, and it did in this book. So I'm not sure who would be the most difficult. I didn't really have a lot of trouble with anybody in this one, except uh, the villain. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, without getting into specifics, the local animals on the ridge uh, definitely play a key role in the storytelling here. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's something you're drawn to in your writing because of your background as a scientist and ecologist, or because people lived so much closer to nature then, or some combination of both? Oh, it's some combination of both. Uh, we've always had pets, you know, both my husband and I grew up with a lot of animals around. His dad was a cattleman and uh, ran cows up in Santa Barbara. And my husband was on horseback at the age of three, you know, and, you know, chousing cows when he was six or seven. Uh, so, you know, he's always been, you know, at home with horses and cows and goats and turkeys and chickens and everything else. His mother, you know, kept goats for milking. And uh, we just had dogs in my, in my family, but we were fond of our dogs. And I always liked uh, animals. I was a biologist by training. And, uh, you know, so very comfortable around any kind of animal. And I did know, you know, that the 18th century was an agrarian culture, essentially. If you're not in the middle of London or, you know, Philadelphia, then you're out on the land. And if you're out doing that, you are of necessity up against nature every minute of the day. Either it's bugs eating your tomato plants, or it's you know moose in your back garden, or you know something else, or something that wants to eat you. Yes. <laughs> um, you have covered such a broad swath of your characters' lives, particularly Jamie and Claire. Is there one person you think has evolved or changed the most over the course of the saga? Mm, it's probably Roger. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, he started out in a sort of uh, equivocal position, being an orphan um, who was being raised by an older minister, his, his great uncle, and his great uncle by marriage, in fact. 
so not a close blood relationship. So that gave him an immediate, you know, yearning for a close family. And he really wants to be married and have children. And uh, so he falls in love with a woman who's not sure that that's what she wants. <laughs> you know, so right off we have problems. Well, I, the only thing I learned in getting a minor degree in English was that novels should have conflict. <laughs> that's an important thing to know, though. It was worth it. Yeah. And uh, so as we go along, Roger's conflicts evolve. You know, he marries Brianna. They you know, do fall deeply in love. They do have children, which, you know, carries its own conflicts and dangers. And then other conflicts arise for Roger, one of which we will explore in some depth at this one and in this book. And uh, we'll see just how strong his, uh, his inner resolve is. Yeah. Well, um, I think one thing we all love about these books is how self-possessed and fierce Claire has always been. But I think more than ever in Bees, she's really coming into her own in every sense of the word, whether it's that she's constantly at Jamie's side in an even more um, precise way than she maybe has been in the past, or her gradual discover discovery of um, her abilities as a healer, shall mm -hmm. we say. So mm -hmm. why was now the right time for her to reach this place in her journey? Does, is it reflective of your own views of aging? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, this is yet another, I won't say excuse, but it is a reason <laughs> for why uh, this last book took a little longer to, uh, to write. Um, I'm basically paralleling the Frasers. Uh, I can't write too far in advance of my own age because I don't know what it's like to be, you know, that much older than where I am when I wrote the book. I started writing Outlander when I was 36 and uh, I will be 70 on my next birthday in January. So, you know, I've sort of aged along with them and that's worked well. I understand, you know, the conflicts and the attitudes and so forth. And, you know, I understand that when you have been sitting for, you know, half an hour and you stand up, your knees will be stiff, you know, <laughs> which, which they weren't before. And I wouldn't have known that, you know, if I were writing about an older character and I was only 40, you know, I would yeah. have just have him jump up and head <laughs> off rather than get up and go like, ah! You know? <laughs> Um, well, without giving anything away, uh, how much do the events of this book possibly connect back to the series you've said you want to write about Master Raymond? Ooh, uh, not at all, really. <laughs> no, I mean, there's little stubs here that might be hooked up later, but the, at the moment, there's nothing there. Gotcha. Um, well, even beyond time travel, there's definitely a mystical element to the Outlander books, um, and that very much comes to bear in, in bees. Um, why is that compelling to you? Uh, I'm a Roman Catholic, you know, we kind of live with mysticism. Yeah. This is our normal, <laughs> our normal <laughs> venue, I, I you might too, say. So. Yeah, okay, you know what I mean. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, essentially part of daily life uh, for most people who are at all sensitive in whether, you know, in terms of formal religion or just in terms of what you might call seeking. What are people seeking for? Because a lot of people are seeking for it. And uh, we call it loosely mysticism or spirituality. There's no real good definition, but we know it when we see it. Mm -hmm. uh, as the books have gotten deeper and deeper into the American Revolution, it's felt like you've had real figures from history popping up with even more frequency. Do you think that's true or is it just maybe that they're 
more recognizable to American <laughs> audiences who grew up learning about these people? Uh, no, there actually are more or were more because as you get further into the American Revolution, a great many more professional sh soldiers from Europe uh, came d deliberately to join the Continental Army because uh, they didn't have to buy a commission. Mm. And uh, they could, you know, be if they had any sort of experience, the Continental Army wanted them and wanted them badly enough, you know, to create them as a lieutenant colonel right off the bat, even though they were a mere, you know, lieutenant in the, in the European Army that they came from. So you did get people like Casimir Pulaski and, uh, and uh, a few other people that, uh, I could name if I was sitting here thinking quietly instead of doing it off the top of my head. But yeah, oh, the <laughs> Lafayette, for instance, yes. who uh, fell in love with the politics and, you know, was just a, a dyed-in-the-wool revolutionary when he arrived. And then, of course, he fell in love with George Washington, who reciprocated this sentiment. They had kind of a father-son relationship. George Washington, of course, had no children. And uh, Lafayette had grown up pretty much without a father as well. So they kind of hit it off on that wavelength mm. as well as mm. the others. But as we're dealing with um, what you might call the larger set pieces, you know, the, the battles, people whose names you would recognize were in those battles. Yeah. And so, you know, if it fits into the story, we will meet one or two of those as, you know, conditions allow. You know, it's not always going to be Benedict Arnold or George Washington, but there will be other people who were there whose names you might or might not recognize. Mm. Francis Marion, a.k.a. the Swamp Fox. And let us say that the real Francis Marion was nothing like the Disney version. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, all I'll say is if you're a Hamilton fan, both written in my own heart's blood and bees mm -hmm. will have a lot of familiar faces yeah, and names of battles and, and all of those things. <laughs> And what do you enjoy about including these real people? And does it pose a different challenge for you than writing the characters you've invented? Well, yes, it does, because uh, you are somewhat constrained by who this person actually was. You know, you're just not making them up out of whole cloth. You have to think, well, at this particular stage of the game, where was this person? You know, not only geographically and age-wise, but in terms of his, uh, you know, his convictions, his lack of convictions, in terms of his... Uh, acquaintanceship with the American Revolution, you know, uh, like General Charles Lee, whom almost nobody knows about unless they read Written in My Own Heart's Blood, in which case they do. But, you know, he was an important figure at the Battle of Monmouth and nearly lost the whole thing and was court-martialed, but for some reason escaped, <laughs> in spite of the fact that he really did, <laughs> did mess up there. Yeah, but he's not one. Anyway, to actually answer your question, um, to deal with a historical person is different than dealing with a, a fictional person. You ha I think you owe some duty to the dead. Mm -hmm. And my own uh, rule of thumb there is when I deal with a historical person, I'll try to keep to the facts of where he was, when he was, but also I will try not to show him, it's usually a him, though not always, doing anything worse than the worst thing I know that person to have done. In mm. other words, I'm not going to, you know, slander people ex post facto. <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate that. No, I bet they do. <laughs> um, now, you said you didn't really know all that much about 18th century Scotland when you first started writing Nothing. Outlander. <laughs> Would you say the same? it was the same for the American Revolution, or, or was it more familiar to you? Oh, no, that was much more familiar to me. Yeah. yeah, I grew up in a time when they actually taught American history in elementary school, middle school, and high school. Yeah. <laughs> Civics. <laughs> <laughs> but even with that basis, how much do you feel like you've learned about it, um, especially these, these last few books? Well, an immense amount, uh, particularly on the military side. You know, the political side... Um, is less interesting to write about, you know, except when it's a point of, you know, 
uh, very clear conflict. Other than that, you know, a lot of messing around in the, in the House of Lords, uh, the House of Commons, this is not interesting to people. These yeah. are not people that we know, even though they were important to what was going on, we're not invested in them emotionally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to pick and choose your, your, your hot spots. <laughs> Um, well, as we uh, mentioned in the recap of Written in My Own Heart's Blood, Brie and Roger are back on the ridge now. Mm -hmm. And this book really gets into them trying to build a life in the past once again. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Before they left several books ago, uh, <laughs> Roger felt very lost. And I, I think it's fair to say he doesn't have the easiest time in these either. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, do you think he'll ever come to a place where he truly feels settled or is he just a type of person who searches? Uh -huh. uh, he is the type of person who searches and will go on doing that, but he's found his center you know, mm. where, mm -hmm. where we are here. He has something to build on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Bree is determined to figure out the mechanics and science of time travel and record mm -hmm. it. Um, do you already have all that worked out for yourself? Well, to an extent. I mean, at one point I was invited to write up the Gabaldon theory of time travel for the Journal of Transfigural Mathematics in Berlin, which I did, by the way, but that was several years ago. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, if you're writing a story that involves time travel, you either have to figure out how it works and explain that, or you just leave it, you know, completely blank, you know. You look in a mirror and you see your great-grandmother looking back at you and poof, you've exchanged souls, you know. <laughs> yeah, and then you leave it at that, you know. But uh, I didn't think that was the way I wanted to go. And here we have Brianna who has a very fine analytical mind and a scientific background. And we have Roger who kind of has a vested interest in knowing how it all works. <laughs> and so they are figuring it out as they go along. But because they don't have, you know, uh, an authority who shows up and explains how it all works or, you know, says, well, now here is the magic time net, you know, which will you know, take care of you not messing around with the future sort of thing, then uh, the reader is going to learn along with them by trial and error because that's all they have. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask a couple questions about mm. the TV series now. Sure. Um, <laughs> we're all eagerly awaiting season six. Ooh. <laughs> uh, have you gotten to see much of it yet? You said you're you're mm -hmm. in the thick of it usually. Uh -huh. I have seen all of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fantastic, yeah. Um, if you were going to describe it in three words, what would you say? Uh, best one yet. Oh, I love that, love that. Yeah. I mean, aside from season one, which is special because it was the first one. Yes. But yeah, no, I like this, uh, this season really well. Yeah. Um, well, book lovers have been awaiting the arrival of the Christie family, and we've gotten to see some photos mm -hmm. of them. Oh, they're fantastic. I love the Christies. <laughs> yeah. I, I, what do you think viewers will make of them? Uh, <laughs> um, uh, well, they'll hate the appropriate person. Yes. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And they will feel sympathy for the appropriate person. <laughs> uh, when they weren't in last season, were you worried that they weren't going to make the cut? Oh, no. Yeah, no. No, they, they, I'm not going to say even the showrunners, because they actually do have very good instincts. I'm going to say uh, nobody would pass up the sort of conflict that oh. they embody. Yes. Um, uh, do you have a favorite moment from this upcoming season um, for those that have read the books, like one that you were really excited to see be brought to life? Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> a number of them. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see, uh, there's a lot of really great moments in this. Uh, one part of it is set in a flashback to Ardsmuir Prison, which uh, has to do with, uh, with Jamie and Tom Christie, mm -hmm. which I like a lot. 
Uh, there's another also with Tom Christie, but with Claire and a surgery and so forth, which again is a you know fantastic riveting thing. And then again, when Malva, you know, reveals her blockbuster news. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sure everybody uh, who knows what's coming is uh, very uh, excited to see that brought to life. Or maybe excited is not the right word, but <laughs> intrigued. <laughs> I'll get your adrenaline up, I'll yes. tell you that. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, well, we already mentioned a little bit the, the Master Raymond prequels. Mm -hmm. You said you've, you want to write. Um, Beyond that, are, are there any other Lord John Gray books or other prequels or spinoffs that you're eager to, to write? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Um, let's see. I do have another Lord John uh, novel in mind. Uh, it just sort of popped up out of nowhere, so I quickly wrote down the synopsis for it, and it's just waiting for the right moment. Um, I do, however, also have a uh, contract for not only Book 10, but also for a prequel novel about Jamie Fraser's parents, Brian and Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, we know once uh, we're done here tonight mm -hmm. and people have the book in their hands, they're going to start reading right away. What are some things you would recommend they have along with them to emotionally prepare for the experience? Oh, well, Kleenex is always good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Probably a you know, stiff dram if, you, if you're a drinking person. <laughs> yes. yes. If you're not, you know, cocoa will do. Um, you have teased on Twitter that you've started book 10. Is mm -hmm. it still your intention for that to be the quote unquote end? Well, let's put it this way. Every single book I've written has been intended to be the end. <laughs> it just didn't work out that way. So I don't know about 10. I'm assuming it will be the end, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I've already asked this about uh, the season, but if you were gonna describe bees in three words, what would you say? Jamie's still alive. Through <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> most of it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, okay, well, that is all of my questions. And um, I just want to thank you for such a wonderful conversation. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf, and until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.